Good morning, good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you're listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Thank you for turning, tuning in live this morning. For those of you who are listening live, it's very early in Israel, very, very late in New York. It's midnight already there, and around the world, I'm certain that you have adjusted your clocks. Those listening on podcast, truly grateful. Today is November 9th, 2023, and we are still very much at war Milchemet Chahavot Barzel, Swords of Iron. And we've been at it, vanquishing our filthy enemy for now over a month. As usual, today's show will probably be a tad personal. We, we get personal here. You get personal. You write me lovely notes, lovely messages, letting me know your heartbeat, your stories, your family situations. And I absolutely enjoy receiving every, every letter from you. Um, if I were to give this segment a title, perhaps this morning I would call it The Mistake. My husband and I, we often talk about Holy Ronnie, my husband, and um, we made a mistake this week, and I'm going to kind of lead you into it a little bit dramatically, a little bit Torah-centric, but I'd like to know what you think. We know that in this Parsha, this week's Torah portion is Chaya Sarah, the lives of Sarah. How many of us can say, what are we, cats, nine lives? The lives of Sarah and Go to any Torah lecture and you will find out what they actually are referring to, three segments of Sarah's life. Um, It's not what we're going to talk about here. In this particular Torah portion, Avraham, Abraham, he returned from Har Hamoriah. He's returning from the mountain, ready to tell Sarah what happened to their son Yitzchak and how God intervened to save his life. Upon his arrival in Beersheba, he comes to Beersheba. If you're following the news, boys and girls, we know where Beersheba is because you do have a map of Israel on your wall. So Avraham hears that Sarah has gone to Hebron searching for him. The Midrash tells us what happened to Sarah in Abraham's absence. Remember, it's a Midrash. The Satan, Satan in uh, the vernacular, the Satan appeared to Sarah asking her, where is Yitzchak? Where is your son? And so she replies that he's with Avraham, studying the laws of sacrifice. Satan tells her that Yitzchak is himself the sacrifice. And although she tries not to believe the Satan she decides to travel to Hebron, Hebron, to seek the help of the three giants that were known to have lived there. And she asks them to gaze. Please, giants, look out. Look as far as you can. Tell me what you see. And they reply that they see an older man with what appears to be his son. And the son is tied to an altar. And the older man is holding a knife in his hand. Sarah, 
the eternal mother cries out six times and then she dies. It's actually because of these six screams that we blow six techiots from the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. What does this have to do with your mistake, Andrea? Rani and I, we shared a beautiful Shabbos last week. We needed it. We needed the quiet. We needed not the balagan of family and grandchildren and noise and lobbies. And Our Shabbos was rich with prayer and Torah talk and even dreams of the future. We had guests at the table on Friday night. We like to pepper our table with people who may not otherwise have a meal on Friday night with others. I admit there was a lot of tequila flowing and there was a lot of talk of gratitude because even though we were never a moment away from the awareness that there was a war taking place, we knew that all is well in the world because we know who's in charge. And here we grew complacent. So complacent, in fact, that we did what so many people do who are Torah observant on Saturday night. We reached for the cell phones and we tuned in to the Saturday night news. Our Motzi Shabbos was destroyed because what did we do? We allowed the Western media, the business of news as business, to infect our souls, to assail our belief systems, to alter our kosher narrative. How did it affect our Sunday? Both of us, together, but agonizingly separate, felt filled with despair. We connected to visions of our demise. We heard the chants. What is it they shout about? From sea to sea, kill the Jews, destroy Israel. Know what the poison of the world is. And on a certain level, we believed it because we invited it in. We don't fear. I, I don't know anybody here, actually, who fears for their personal demise. Fear of dying in a holy war for Israel's existence. I admit it here right now. It's not a blip on my personal radar. But the despair of being part of a possible folly called Israel? To actually question myself, do we really matter? Have we inflated the importance of our existence due to some sort of religious dysmorphia? Does God even exist? And then my son visited us on Sunday night he had had a 24-hour break, sent home to gather himself, to connect with family from his position in the army. 
eating at my kitchen table way too late after I had put everything else away. He reminded us of everything that is so unassailably correct in this battle between good and evil. Without knowing just how disordered we'd become, he strengthened us, this chayal, this holy soldier that we are trying to strengthen and embolden and pump up with national enthusiasm. He mechazekt lanu. He strengthened us. He strengthened us and shared his limited but still ringside views of the battle at hand, the brilliance and tactical acumen of our military, the camaraderie of our holy fighting force, what they are learning from each captured terrorist monster. And he was not humble as his chest puffed up with indisputable pride at being a star player in the arena called Israel forever. Am Yisrael Chai. His passion, his complete disinterest in the views of that whorish Western media pundits. It provided that antidote that I my husband, and others who rely on us for the representative Jewish-Israeli heartbeat so badly needed. And so we made a pact. Next morning, Monday morning, I could not. I thought to myself, gee, I'm of a certain age, and I will never get... That 24 hours back, gone forever, what I did, wasted in doubt, in fear, in a lack of a muna, a shaky faith. And what was our pact? The pact not to allow the poison of entertainers to manipulate our emuna. A pact to ignore the incessant barrage of updated and injurious information that has no basis in God's promise to Am Yisrael, the people of Israel. To ignore anything that disputes or calls into question Israel's morality. Anything that is not based on information other than the need for additional pawns in what is nothing more than a revenues war. We know the truth. And just like a body cannot exist with a little malignant cancer, even a little doubt will undermine much, much more than an occasional sad Sunday. Heard a lovely Torah perspective. We call it a vort, a word. I was leaving the gym. Was it Monday morning on the morning of my healing? Perhaps. Torah is everywhere. And I was listening to a Torah broadcast and the rabbi used as an example 
and forgive me if you are not an Elon Musk fan. Uh, I really don't know very much about him, but I know that he's phenomenally wealthy. I think he's reputed to be the man in the world. I don't know. But imagine Elon Musk is walking to a meeting. He's a very punctual guy. He has papers in his hand that he's going to present at that meeting. And suddenly, an administrative assistant comes running out of his office and bangs into Elon Musk without seeing him, and the papers go flying, and the cup of coffee that is in the hand of the executive assistant spills and stains some of the papers. Is Elon Musk, a man with drive, ambition, and an agenda, and a meeting to get to, going to take the time to review the sloppy footsteps of the administrative assistants? To sit and say to him, gee, you should be more careful, let's talk about it. To pay any attention with anything that will take him off course of his morning's agenda. Of course not. We have what to do. We have what to pray for. We know where our bolstering must be aimed at. For any of us to allow thoughts, philosophies, mindsets that do not jive with our holy agenda weakens us and makes us smaller. The assignment, my friends, is to recognize that if you're emuna, if you're emuna shalema, your complete faith needs some work, Need some tweaking? Let's get started today. Get praying. Get learning. Get observing. And most important, know who's in charge. Okay. I am looking now and seeing who is with us live this morning. It is so exciting. Okay, in addition... (laughs) We have other. Other is included in my list this morning. But let me just say good night, good evening to my dear friends in the United States. I know Kathy's with us, and that's everything to me. Um, so many friends listening in from America. Canada, good morning, Canada. Israel is with us. Boketov, Israel. The question we ask one another is not, how are you today? But as my client said to me, speak to anybody in Israel and say, hi, how's your resilience today? That's what we'll do. Good morning. Japan is with us. New Zealand, New Zealand, Australia, the United Kingdom. Ireland is with us today. Brazil, Guyana, Russia, Serbia, Japan, Singapore, other. Austria is with us today and France. And as you join live, I will call it out. Very, very exciting. And you know what? It really is heartwarming. It's great. I'm humbled. Thank you. You know, speaking about humility speaking about gratitude while we're at it um maybe i became too healed maybe i became a little too healthy maybe i became a little too forgetful yesterday i took the day off i didn't have my typical guilt gee moving clients from this day to that day i took the day off without guilt and i met my daughter in ikea I needed a few items, and Ikea is always a great excuse, a great excuse to get out for a few hours. What did I need? What critical 
items did I need in my Jerusalem home? I needed a salad spinner and I needed some spray bottles and, of course, the famous napkins. So, you know, I meet my daughter and um, we got off the furniture floor. Neither one of us really needed furniture. And we laughed. We forgot for a few moments. We laughed. We laughed about familiar things, about family things. We argued over whether or not to have lunch there or make a salad at her house. Um, on the way out, after I paid, we stopped at the little food court there, and we admired the skinless, boneless salmon, and I actually bought it. You should know that all the items here in Ikea Israel are kosher. It was a regular day. Such a regular day. And only this morning in preparing the show did it dawn on me, ping, 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 to what did I owe that blessed regular day? A day that afforded me living in Jerusalem, not in the southern border towns that afforded me an opportunity to forget the atrocities that had occurred and the dangers that Israelis and world Jews were and are facing every single moment. The Israel Defense Forces, the army, Sahal. I forgot. I had forgotten as I checked out various sofa options that I am blessed to live in the most magical and righteous country in the world, bar none. I had forgotten. I had forgotten as I was looking at bags of coffee and bottle openers to bless my parents for the sacrifices that resulted in an education that resulted in my earning enough money to frivolously, frivolously, Spend a bit of that cash on unnecessary Swedish doodads. Not everyone has this option. I had forgotten to feel gratitude for the sechel, my wisdom and drive to watch my diet and enjoy relatively good health that allows me to plan for many, many tomorrows. Mitzvot. Mitzvahs, they present themselves at every opportunity. And the mitzvah to celebrate gratitude is just as critical. There's no weight scale to say what is more important in God's judgment. What is a mitzvah? Don't get mixed up. Don't get lost in the, in the English translations and call it a commandment. A mitzvah is an opportunity. An opportunity. And just as when we don't do a mitzvah, we are missing an opportunity. When we create a sin, a sin is a void. It's a missed opportunity. The mitzvah of taking nothing for granted and basking often in the bracha, the blessing of gratitude. Yep, it's there so often, even now as we share this moment. Um, before we get into the nitty-gritty, nitty-gritty, let's watch this clock here. Ooh, ooh. 
a lovely reminder. I call this from the Torah to your table. It's Thursday. We're preparing for Shabbos already. I know that I am. Ergo the salmon. Um, Rabbi Hirsch, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, he maintains that Rivka, Rebecca, she didn't immediately say that she's going to also water her camels. Remember the scene? Eliezer is looking for a wife for Yitzchak. And he goes and he says, you know, you have to find a wife from this tribe, from my family's tribe. And we see the lovely Rivka. And she offers Eliezer some water. He's certainly thirsty, certainly dusty. And she doesn't say she's going to provide water for the camels. She waits until after he finishes drinking. Now, if she said, you know, I'm going to give you some water and I'm going to water your camels and your your plants and everything else, you know, she would have appeared as a conceited gossip who likes to make a big talk, big talk about the good deeds, what I'm going to do, and then you just see, just wait. She would not have been a suitable bride because it would have, in a sense, illustrated a lack of Avraham's trait of saying little and doing much. Remember? On the third day after his bris, when three strangers appear to him, he says to them that he's going to fetch a morsel of bread, which certainly would have been maximally expected a man in such agony of his age on the worst day of the recovery. But in practice, what does he do? Avraham fetches a meal of meat and cakes for his guests. So maybe as we try to embrace as much normalcy as we can on the Sabbath during this poignant period of Jewish history, we might talk about examples of Avraham and Rivka not needlessly boasting of plans to do good deeds, but of just doing them. All right, back to the war, back to the war. It's very funny. I'm doing this show. You know, I do this show from the heart of Yerushalayim, Ira Kodesh, Jerusalem, the holy city. And Baruch Hashem, bless God, you know, we don't talk too much. We're pretty quiet here. I live between, I told you I live between two Arab villages. I sometimes wonder if I'm a Jew living in an Arab village or the Arabs are living in a Jewish part of the city. Anyway, um, a lot of talk. Even as I ignore the news, even as I bury CNN alive, even as I have no interest in today, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the New York Times, can I not hear the whispers or screams talk of a ceasefire? A ceasefire. Well, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? Why, why, why would we oppose a ceasefire? Isn't not killing a good thing? What's wrong with that? You know what? I'm thinking about Ikea. A ceasefire is a very good idea if you live in Sweden. We have nobody from Sweden listening in this morning, probably working on their ceasefire. Um, I don't remember anybody calling for a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Was there a ceasefire? Did, Did I miss the ceasefire after September 11th? You know, there's something about 
the charges of Israeli aggression, which if they weren't so perverse, they'd be embarrassing. I keep thinking about how in the last 16 years, we practiced giving more and more and a little more for peace, peace, because we did the bidding, the bidding of the West, the bidding of that filth called the United Nations. And what did we get for our minimally six proposals of Israel crushing peace? We got more bus bombings, street stabbings, cars crashing into bus stops, and other creative massacres. October 7th, our day that will live in infamy, 1,400 Israelis gleefully, hysterically, madly, joyfully tortured, raped, burned, stabbed, beheaded. More than 200 hostages remain in questionable captivity. Ceasefire? No. I think I speak for others when I say you will not doom me to death when it is my turn with your feel-good proposals and armchair wisdom. When you have skin in the game, you can talk. Until then, from behind this mic, I respectfully request that you shut up. Israel has awakened. Stay out of our way. In that same line of thought, oh, good morning, Uganda has joined us. Very nice. I love seeing our friends from Uganda. I love seeing everybody from Africa with us. Don't see South Africa this morning. Maybe I'm missing it. Okay. Somebody posted, I came across, I don't know where I found this, but it was in August 11th, 1945. A letter had been written, well, a letter had been written by uh, Mr. Samuel McRae Cavert. And I find out that he was the general secretary of the Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America. And he had written to President Harry S. Truman protesting the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Have, has anybody ever met anybody who thought, whoop-de-doo, wasn't that a great, great moment in American history? It was a moment. I want to read you Harry Truman's Dick respectful response. My dear Mr. Cavert, nobody is more disturbed over the rise of atomic bombs than I am. But I was greatly disturbed over the unwarranted attack by the Japanese on Pearl Harbor and their murders and their murder of our prisoners of war. The only language they seem to understand is the one we have been using to bombard them. When you have to deal with a beast, you have to treat them as a beast. It is most regrettable but nevertheless true. Sincerely yours, 
Harry Truman. I don't know. Somehow things feel different when it's Israel delivering the same message. Think about it. Uh, let's just look here. Yashurat Hadin, my favorite organization in the world, led by the holy Nitsana Darshan Leitner. By the way, okay, wait, I forgot to toss this in, this caveat. If anything I speak about on this show and you want the source, you want the connected web address, the URLs, you want to take issue with me as this week, um, Chuck. I remember your last name, Chuck, but we had a very nice back and forth. Uh, we had a little disagreement, and um, it was very respectful, and I enjoyed hearing from you. Um, anything you want, write to me, Andrea, at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Anything that you'd like me to cover on the show or perhaps uh, talk about, um, I really do appreciate it. And I encourage you, if I say anything very quickly and you want to have the name, uh, a repeat, a Hebrew translation, let me know. So I talk about Nitzana Darshan Leitner from the holy organization Shurat Hadin, S-H-U-R-A-T, new word, H-A-D-I-N. And... um, so she, uh, just hold on, somebody sent me something. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> so she, oh man, what God has poured into this holy person. No fear, fearless, truly the, 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 the embodiment of Jewish womanhood. Um, she has formally accused the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, of failing to support over 130,000 internally displaced Israelis amid recent conflicts with Hamas. Apparently, Jewish homelessness, Jewish land expro... Ex- what's the word? Expropriation? I'm losing the English. Um... The UN, we don't count. We're merely Jews. According to a statement from Sharad Hadin, since October 7th, Israeli families have more than 60 communities, uh, from more than 60 communities have faced displacement during the war in Gaza and additional threats from the northern enemy, Hezbollah. All right? We know this. We, For those of us living in Jerusalem, we have these evacuees, don't use that word, refugees, evacuees, they're going home and they'll have more, more and more and more neighbors among the, you know, with Jews. Um, they are displaced. The terrible losses, the death, the kidnapping, the destruction of their property, not a blip on the UN radar screen. Yeah, keep sending them money. My question, and again, when things are a little more normal in Israel, I am going to invite some experts to please come and explain to me why Israel still is a member nation of the United Nations, the filthiest, filthiest organization hiding between a cloak of morality, a banner of white sheets, Oh, I like that. White sheets. Yeah. Um, In a closing quote, 
Josh and Leitner asserts Israeli taxpayers should not have to shoulder the burden of recovery alone, especially when international aid is readily extended to other victims of the same conflict. It's time for the UN to provide every displaced Israeli with the shelter, food, clothing, and medical care they urgently require. Talking about clothing, feeding, educating, offering sukkar and solace. Never, never in all of my life have I seen an outpouring of volunteerism giving selflessly as the Israeli populace gives again and again. If actually this were an aberrant experience, I would say, gee, we're really outdoing ourselves. But no, we're not outdoing ourselves. We're doing ourselves. What we can do to earthquake victims in Turkey, what we can do for the victims in Haiti, what we can do during Hurricane Katrina, we can do for ourselves. Oh, I must mention, I I did, anybody who follows, not just me on Facebook, but anybody, anybody, anybody who lives here and is of my mindset, you've seen the Cowboys. There's a group of, they're actually um, devoutly Christian, Christian Cowboys. They come through a, a Christian organization that's actually based here in Israel. And a bunch of them came, really these kind of good looking guys, they look like they're going to be teaching us line dancing at the end of the war. But anyway, um, very cute They've been interviewed, and they came from, I think, Montana and Arkansas and North Texas to work in the fields because we don't have – the fields have to be – they have to be collected, the all the fruits and the vegetables and sent up north. A bunch of firefighters now from various organizations, and I believe that these are – um, religious God-fearing individuals, not Jewish, coming and joining and helping us in our holy battle to remain vibrant, vibrant and Israel forever. So again, if you're listening to the show, if you are one of our holy non-Jewish friends, hands across the oceans, hands across the mountains, we thank you. We are grateful. All right, let's see, because, wow, the time is racing, racing, racing. Do we want to talk about Qatar and Joe Biden? Not so much. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I have to say this. All right, so let me just repeat one more time. My email address, write to me. I love the letters. I love the notes. We love the encouragement. And we love any vote, any thumbs up coming in the direction of Israel News Talk Radio. Their motto is straight talk from Israel. We're not all in agreement. We are not, we are definitely not a, a homogenized set, a sect of presenters. But front, foremost, Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, Ahavat Yisrael, the people of Israel, the land of Israel, and love for Israel. That unites us. We are indeed a fraternity sorority. Okay. 
while everybody's worried, you know, everybody's, they put the pictures, Hollywood, you know, the pictures of them putting ketchup on the faces of little Arab children before they strap them to stretchers and then send it out to Reuters. Um, let me tell you, I have a note here. I'm looking at my pages here. How much preparation? Um, yeah, white flags. Who is worried about the children of Gaza? Who is bleeding for the children of Gaza? Who is doing everything to protect the children of Gaza, even as 40% of the casualties in Gaza were children? You guessed. You know what show you're listening to. Israel. Dozens of white flags were seen being waved as Palestinian Arabs passed en masse to the southern end of the Gaza Strip on Tuesday. Who protected them as they made their way to safer ground? Who warded off enemy fire as these Arabs made their way through this humanitarian window of time? Israel. Would you like to know what the Hamas did? as they were escaping the day before, shot at them, sent rockets. Because their Arab brothers and sisters are not worthy of saving their collateral damage, their fodder, their currency. Israel, not good for the Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS war machine. Not just did Israel protect them when they saw the onslaught of Arab rage against those who foolishly wanted to live, we, in danger to our soldiers, extended that window to allow them more time. Or you can believe the Western press. The IDF, that not only did we allow the passage of, 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 of these Gazan civilians to pass, there was a post made um, by us. Who made this post? The Arabic language military spokesperson. His name is Avichai Ad Adra'i. He put up this post and let everybody see. Dear residents of Gaza, understand, once again, coming from Jewish sources, not theirs, their, their protectors, their government, we, us. Dear residents of Gaza, join the many who are heading to the southern Gaza Valley at this hour. I would like to inform you that although Hamas continues to undermine the ongoing humanitarian efforts on your behalf and uses you as human shields, today the IDF will once again allow passage on the Salah al-Din Road. In that same announcement made on X, I think, what is that, like Mega, Facebook, something like that? He added footage of the Gazans evacuating through a corridor. Quote, if you care about yourself and your loved one's health, south, head south according to our instructions. Rest assured that Hamas leaders have already taken care of defending themselves. Do I need to say more? Ah, thank you. Thank you, engineer. Twitter 
X is Twitter. I know. I was I was on Twitter. I was supposed to be on Twitter. I was actually instructed when I took uh, when I took this position at Israel News Talk Radio, go on to Twitter. But I found out that I had so many enemies, primarily in Poland, that I got off Twitter. I couldn't take it. Okay, thank you. Um, this I thought was cute. Before we go into our Dvar Torah so- section, I just must share this with you. At first, there was an announcement that the beautiful greenhouses, uh, the nurseries in Kibbutz Be'eri, Kibbutz Be'eri, one of the prime targets of the October 7th brutality onslaught, the program that unfolded. On top of their misery, there was a rumor that their greenhouses and nurseries had been broken into. And it was accurate. They have been broken in two. However, it's not what we thought. They were broken into. Um, here, they found a note. It was written by <laughs> soldiers who were stationed to protect the border. And the note they found were, sorry, we broke into the nursery. We had to water the plants with love the soldiers my israel your israel Bokertov, eretz israel okay um let's see i have a whole letter what you can do be part of the war effort let's skip that for now um yeah Okay, one thing, one thing that Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg brings down that I do want to share with you. It's not just us. Thank you. Thank you for listening in. Thank you for being part of this. Thank you for sharing this podcast. Thank you for informing yourself. Um, my dearest, dearest friend who I know is listening in this morning, she had this incredible aha moment this week when we were having a phone conversation and I loved it. My friend Kay, she was putting two and two together, something she was kind of comparing a certain, kind of juxtaposing a certain American situation with the, with the situation in Israel. And she said the most wonderful, the most Jewish, the most holy statement any Yid can make. She said, I have to think about this. We don't know, have to know. But if we refuse to think about it, then we are dooming ourselves to nothingness. And remember, at the end of our days, to stand at the gates of heaven and say, I thought little, I did less, I made no waves, I left no footprint, my legacy was nothingness. Your choice, my choice. Because Rabbi Goldberg reminds us that as Israel is battling on the front lines, this is not only our war. Any massacre, any atrocity in Israel, it reveals that ugly reality of Hamas sympathizers who live near you major cities in America. 
the heartland of Europe. Nobody listening to this program this morning has not, whether by design or by accident, watched supposedly educated, respectable people not only fail to condemn what was what has fallen upon us. Defend it. Identify with it. And even reveal that they would be perfectly fine with it being perpetrated against us. Their neighbors. Oh, f- sorry. Would reveal that they would be perfectly fine with that horror not being visited upon everyone else except Israel. Hamas has in its charter not only to drive Jews from Israel, but to kill Jews around the world. You are not a spectator. You do not have the luxury to turn the page and check your horoscope. You're not on the sidelines because you are a target. If you're Jewish, you already have skin in the game. Might be a good idea to act on it. Okay. In this week's Parsha, in this week's Torah portion, it records for us the passing of our father and mother of Avraham and Sarah. And the Torah notes these sad events without Interestingly enough, without kind of like an undue display of emotion or even of great sadness, the Torah's view of life is that death is inevitable and that death does not end the influence of life. Have we not spoken about that? In fact, death, it doesn't end life itself. The whole idea of the story of Yitzchak's miraculous birth and his being saved from the altar of the Akedah is to emphasize to us the continuation, continuity, continuation of life and generations in a family and in Jewish people generally. If Yitzchak is alive and finds a wonderful maid in Rivka, then Avraham and Sarah are also still with us. You know, we name our children after the departed because we keep them alive a little bit longer. And in generation after generation, sometimes as we continue to name after the departed, nobody in the family actually remembers the first one, six, seven, nine generations back who had the name. That's okay. That's God's purview. The Torah emphasizes schut avot, the merit of the previous generation standing in good stead for our later generations. But there's also the concept of later generations justifying and affirming the accomplishments of those generations. But you know, more today than ever, as we see ourselves as one, one people, one tapestry, one fabric, we have to understand that a generation that sees itself in isolation without true connection to its past and without any feeling of duty and responsibility to the future 
is a generation that fears death. Death as a forever condition. In order to avoid this mistaken and dangerous notion of life, Rabbi Wine brings down that the Torah describes the death of Sarah, our mother, in the words, Chayei Sarah, the life of Sarah, because she lives on through all of Jewish eternity. You know, our mother Sarah, her life was, it was certainly no picnic. It was filled with frustration, with pain, with evil, evil events, constant tension. Hagar, Yishmael, Paro, Avimelech, they're all part of the challenges that she faced. And even that miraculous gift, that unprecedented and unexpected birth, well past her menopause of Yitzchak only adds to the tensions in her own home. She can't even survive his near death. In fact, if we look at the lives of all of our patriarchs and matriarchs, we can actually come to the conclusion that Yaakov's assessment of life, Jacob, quote, few and difficult were the days of my life. It was really pretty accurate. But that would be viewing the lives of the founders of our people in a very constricted way. It was those troubles, those travails that fashioned them into these almost superhuman figures that stand as examples for all of us, even today. Don't kid yourself. Jewish life has always been a struggle. It's always a place of tension and challenge, danger, soaring hope and belief. And a response to this condition, sadly, in every generation we're tested. Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, she lives on after her death because her spirit, her determination, her clarity is the narrative of her lifetime. The Torah is so accurate in portraying her death as still a life because deep down within us, this is a source of our comfort. Any one of us who has have lost a loved one, they live on in our lives. They live on in our deeds. There can be no greater comfort in viewing life and its physical end, which is inevitable, than the story of Sarah and this important lesson that we get. You know, Chazal, we use the term Chazal here, and I refer to that and I say that as the sages. Um, the sages say Lasuach, meaning that Yitzchak went to pray. Um, the Abarbanel, in a beautiful, beautiful interpretation that I came across, says that the major struggle against Avodah Zarah, idol worship, at the time was against those who worshipped the sun. Thus, Yitzchak established the afternoon prayer, we call it the Mincha, to stress that the sun is not a god, but that it is a creation of the master creator, God. 
Nisin Mindel, in the Sefer, My Prayer, he quotes the Zohar, which emphasizes that each prayer established by our forefathers reflects the particular nature or the personality of the patriarch who instituted it. This is like Torah 101 for any of you who are looking forward to joining yeshiva, joining a serious study program. You're going to learn about the three prayer services, the shacharit, the morning, the mincha is the afternoon, and the ma'ariv, the, the evening service. If Abraham's life was likened to the rising sun in the morning, the shacharit, Yitzchak was like the declining sun in the afternoon, where it starts to get a little bit hazy. Yitzchak, he had to deal with enemies who envied and challenged his wealth. He had his, his life began the 400 years of exile. It began with his birth. He became blind in his old age. He had a troublesome son, Esav. And the Zohar continues with the idea that during all of the prayers, one should attune one's mind, but more so during Mincha. Because at that time, the quality of judgment, the din, prevails in the world. And for this reason, Yitzchak initiated the Mincha prayer this time of day. What's so important about that? And why at this time, Andrea, during this particular presentation of Pull Up a Chair? We learn the importance of the mincha from the response it evokes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He. When Eliyahu prayed on the Carmel, he was answered only at the time of the mincha prayers. In fact, he points out that unlike Avraham and Yaakov's prayers, to which we never find God responding immediately, such a response was accorded Yitzchak, as we see from the end of the verse, quote, and I translate, and he lifted up his eyes and he saw, and behold, camels were coming. Close quote. Yitzchak, who had been inconsolable from the time of his mother Sarah's death until now, he prayed at the time of sunset that his future mate would restore the light that had dimmed after his mother's departure. The Midrash states that upon Rivka's arrival, just as the proverbial sun is setting, the lights which had burned in the tent of Sarah are rekindled. Yitzchak is finally comforted. Tefillah Mincha is particularly acceptable to Hashem. Shacharit is said first thing in the morning before one has become involved and distracted with the day's activities. But Mincha reflects the interruption of one's mundane affairs and requires us to stop, concentrate, remember who's in charge, despite distractions, preoccupations. And as such, God especially heeds the Mincha prayer when it is recited both with devotion and sincerity. In our closing section today, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. I want to go on and on and on. I'm sure you had enough. Okay. Um, 
the Midrash quoted in part by Rashi states that a cloud hovered over the tent of Sarah during her lifetime. This cloud disappeared upon her death, but reappeared when Rivka married Yitzchak, says Rabbi Aharon Salavechik in his book, The Warmth and the Light. On this particular Midrash, I quote, cloudy days are generally unpleasant days and are representative of hard times. The cloud which hovered over our mother's tent then symbolized the sacrifices that each member of a Jewish household must make for one another. Every home inevitably experiences a share of difficult periods during which the real strength of a family's bond is tested. In order to maintain and preserve the ideal Jewish home, all of its members must be giving of themselves for the benefit of others. Close quote. Our home, our Jewish home, our family requires the sacrifice of one another during this, tip of, this, this troublesome period. Our bond is being tested. I have no doubt because I have Emuna Shalema, as do most of you. I wish you Shabbat Shalom Umivorach from Jerusalem. <laughs>